When Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter number 11, verse 33, he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And let's say along with Paul together, amen. Hallelujah. So the book of Romans is perhaps the most, if not the most, and the second most theological doctrinal book in the New Testament, Ephesians and Romans. Uh, smart guys and ladies like to debate which one is more theological. All I know is that Paul has been writing some deep stuff in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, almost impossible to fathom theology. But at this point, he's saying, I'm going to take off the theologian's cap and I'm going to put on the robe of a worshiper, and I'm just going to tell you, God, you are mind-blowing. That's literally, well, not literally, that is encapsulating what he's writing there. He's saying, you can't figure him out. You can't measure him. You can't define him. Watch this. You can't predict him, and you can't control him. And he says, because everything came from him, it is for him. It's going to go back to him. And so Paul says, let's just give him all of the glory right now, and let's do it forever and ever. It is a statement of wonder written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but written by a man who was the deepest theologian the church has ever known. He was a brain. He was a thinker. He was a philosopher. He was trained in rabbinic law. He was a, a man with such an amazing pedigree and scholarship. And yet when he really got into the presence of God, he didn't know how to articulate the wonder in his heart. I am afraid in our day, brothers and sisters, that the more we are growing in the Lord, the more we are understanding theologically, doctrinally, the more that we are ingesting of the Scripture, I am perhaps seeing the opposite effect. We're losing our wonder. We're losing our sense of Abba and, and more galvanized in our sense of God the Almighty, which both realities are biblical. But I do believe that when God initiated interaction with man, it was not so that he would become a subject to be studied and mastered by us, but it is more likely that he just wanted to be an Abba Father who wanted to spend time with us. Not because he lacked anything of himself, but because he delights in what he makes and he made you for his glory and your good. And so I am finding in my life, and forgive me for testifying, but I can't give your testimony, I can only give mine. I am finding in my life that I'm having to fight to retain my wonder. I'm having to fight to remain awe-stricken by the Lord. I'm having to say no to some things that encroach upon the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I have to suppress my urge when the Holy Spirit says, dance, son, dance, son. I have to suppress my urge to say, but I'm not in a room of dancers. <laughs> so where do we go to reconnect with our wonder? Well, it begins with just some simple things I'm going to share with you today. 
And I don't think anybody's immune from the need for this text today. And so I better get to preaching. It is already time. So here we go. I'm going to start where you might be tempted to yawn with these words, worshiping God in prayer. Worshiping God in prayer, the most elementary, foundational function and privilege in the Christian life is that we are called, I believe, in in the context of worship, the foundation, the springboard, the launching pad for worship is praying. And praying is not simply God bless the missionaries, God bless the potatoes, amen. It is talking with God, but it is not only talking with God, it is learning to hear from God. And that is the long-lost art of abiding and waiting and soaking in the presence of the Lord. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through several places in the Scripture. You can write down the references or you can look on the screen. I hope that uh, you in the back will leave those verses up on the screen long enough for the, the, those that are taking notes to look. But let's begin when we're talking about worshiping God in prayer. Let's just begin where God wants us all to begin, and that is the presence of God. I could have picked dozens and dozens of verses, but I chose these two from the 145th Psalm, which tell us that the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. This is not the concept of God that I began uh, my understanding of God with. God was the rule keeper, the scorekeeper that I wanted to avoid because I was really good at breaking the rules and undermining the score. And so it was unfathomable to me to, to, to think of God in this way of mercy and grace and compassion. I knew him as just, I knew him as holy, I knew him as right, I knew I didn't have a leg to stand on, I didn't feel like I could ask him for much because I knew who I was and I had an inkling about the justice side of God. And so I, when I was introduced to this idea, this biblical truth that God actually wanted to be with me, it blew my mind. Because quite frankly, if I sound a little bit like Dr. Phil, that's okay, I won't bill you for it, but I did not believe that I was worth, I had any value for which God might want to spend time with me. It's a sense of inadequacy, a sense of unworthiness, but then I would read verses like this that says, Jeff, if you in the 20th and 21st century will call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you will call upon the Red Sea splitting God, the hailstone raining God, the Mount Sinai God, the Mount Calvary God, the Mount of Transfiguration God, if you will call upon Him, your Bible tells you that He's going to draw near to you. I mean, that is mind-blowing, and so it was an element of faith in me. I could say, well, I don't sense that. And and, and the way the Lord worked with me, it was, okay, you don't sense it because you don't believe it. And so I had to believe before I sensed it. When I started believing that the presence of God was not on the back far left corner of heaven somewhere, but that we were in the presence of God, and the presence of God is in us through Jesus Christ, I started realizing I can talk to him, he hears me, he can talk to me, I hear him. And the presence of the Lord is where wonder and you get reconnected. You're not going to get that on the fly. You're not going to get that squeezing God in. You're not going to get that as number eight on your list of priorities. It made the top ten, but right now it's number eight. It's just not going to work that way. Now again, that's not some legalistic duty putting it up at number one and putting all your real happiness down lower. My friends, it's this. It is, he is God. 
He is the one who has promised and pledged to shepherd you, lead you, take care of you, but he also wants you to enjoy him because there is in him fullness of joy. The presence of God inevitably will lead to my next thought when we're talking about prayer. Again, we're talking about that basic childlike premise of the Christian life where we talk to the Lord and we do learn how to hear him back. Talking is the easy part. Hearing him requires a maturing ear, but you can. Jesus said, all of my sheep will know my voice. They'll hear it. I mean, he promised us that, and so it's not kept for the select few. But the power of God, Jeremiah 33, 3. I, I much prefer the King James version of this. I'll read it to you in the English Standard Version. But we see in Jeremiah 33, 3, God saying, call to me and I will answer you. And will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. I like the King James. will show you great and mighty things that you know not. Uh, the emphasis is this. When we begin to call upon the Lord in some way or fashion, He will respond. He is going to respond. So many times I'm convicted. I have my son down here on the front row, and I, I, I just don't have that kind of, well, I'm not omniscient, amen? Sometimes I think he's omnipresent, but I am, I am not omniscient. And so I'm doing this, I'm, I'm answering an email, I'm doing something, and my son's over here and he's saying something, and I, I don't hear him. I know he's there, but I don't hear and I don't respond the way that God responds to me, the way that God responds to you. It is if it, the, the pledge of God is this, that wherever you are, when you know you need me or when you desire to talk to me, you call on to me and you've got my full attention. You call after me and I will put down, can I say it this way, put down whatever I'm doing, I'll lock eyes with you and I'll say, what can I do for you, girl? What can I do for you, boy? And the Bible says it's not just that he arbitrarily listens and acknowledges our, our little feeble prayers to him, but he says, I'm going to actually answer and address what you're saying, what you're asking, and I'm going to show you some things that you have never seen before. Perhaps this is the most undervalued statement coming out of the mouth of God anywhere in the Old Testament. That God said, and it's a principle that we can apply to ourselves. The promise wasn't made directly to you and me, but it is a principle that reveals the heart of God. What is that principle? God says, when my kids call out to me, when my covenant people call out to me, I am, I am obligating myself to respond and to show them things that they never even thought of. Jesus would put it a different way. He said, if, if you just bring to me a little mustard seed of faith, you see Stone Mountain over there? Watch it move. He's speaking in imagery. He's saying that there is no obstacle too great that can withstand the affirmed prayer between the weakest saint who is petitioning the mighty God. So then we come to this issue because we're talking about wonder and worship because I already hear it. I can hear it. It's not been expressed verbally yet, but people are going to say, well, what about that prayer I offered that didn't get answered? Well, I'm glad you asked that. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. Brings us to what I call the promise of God, the presence of God, call, the power of God, call, and then the pr a promise of God. And look at what Jesus said. And here's an opportunity for us to believe Jesus or not to believe Jesus. Luke 11, verses 9 and 10. Jesus said, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one uh, who knocks, to, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. You ever been frustrated by that statement from the Lord? 
Raise your hand if you've ever had one, at least one unanswered prayer. Raise your hand. Good, good, because I just wouldn't, didn't want to make sure I was the only one in the room. <laughs> I've asked God for at least a couple of things the whole time I've been saved, and they haven't happened yet. And so I, I found in my life, I'm just not content to just say, I don't know. That's what's wrong with our churches. Too many people say this nice, wonderful, churchy stuff, and then when the tension comes and, and things can't happen, they just like, and they just kind of shrug it off, and they don't bother saying, well, wait a minute, Lord. You said this, but I'm experiencing this. I know you're not messing up, but I need to know what I need to do. Now, I'm going to give you something here, and I can't go too far down this road, but I do want to tell you something. First of all, does Jesus tell the truth or not? Okay, he is the truth. Nothing is impossible for so. Is he playing games? Is he is he only giving secrets out to the Gnostics who have a special key to knowledge and can overinterpret this verse, or is he speaking plainly to a group of people who had just asked him, "Lord, teach us to pray." They had just asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. He gives them the Lord's Prayer. And then he sets up the statement where he says, hey, look, you guys are sorry, daddies. You're evil daddies, but you know how to give your kids good stuff. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Those are the words of Jesus. And then he's telling them, he's saying, I just want you to keep on asking. I want you to keep on seeking. I want you to keep on knocking. Now, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but those of you that are my age and older may remember the name of this game, Huckle Buckle Beanstalk. Does anybody know that? I'm feeling like a weirdo. I wish I hadn't said it. (laughs) You'll know the game. You may not know the name of the game, but Huckle Buckle Beanstalk was a game that pre-Nintendo, pre-Xbox, pre-every, pre-Atari, when you had long summers and you had nothing to do but go outside and, and just have fun, we would play this Huckle Buckle Beanstalk. And sometimes it was me and my friend Michael, and we'd play it in our neighborhood. I was about seven years old. And you hide something in the room, and the person's got their eyes closed, and their job is to find that one thing. And as they're walking around, you're saying, colder, 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 hotter, warmer, 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 hot, hot, hot. And he opens up and he finds whatever the huckle-buckle beanstalk moment was. I'm going to, at the risk, it's a big risk, it's feeling really big now, at the risk of minimizing the intensity of how important prayer is, I'm going to give you something. Maybe you'll remember by the phrase huckle-buckle beanstalk, you can't laugh that loud on the front row, you're killing me. (laughs) Here's the thing. When we start out in our prayers, when we begin to ask and we begin to seek and we begin to knock, we're pretty convinced we know where that thing is that we need from the Lord. And we begin to say, I I need this, I need this, I need this. And it doesn't come. We don't have any warmer, 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 hotter. We may even hear colder, colder. And so we we begin over time to, to redirect our prayers, maybe to gain some insight when we haven't found that original thing we're asking for. And, and, and then we hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit, you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. Now, now you're moving away from that thing that you thought was going to be immediately answered. And the Lord's just kind of redirecting you. He's not moving you from a good thing to a bad thing. He's moving you in His will. 
And as you continue to ask and you continue to seek and you continue to knock, depending on how you're hearing him, depending on how he's leading you, you're going to sense warmer, 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 and then eventually there will come a moment where you receive an answer that is tethered to what you were looking for, but it comes in a different way than what you might have originally thought. In other words, I have lots of prayers that were not answered the way I originally wanted them to be answered. But God huckle-buckle beanstalked me, and I moved from that original prayer, and in that process of asking continually, seeking continually, knocking continually, I came to that place where he said, that's it, that's what I've been trying to lead you to. And friends, that is sometimes the way the Lord operates in your prayers. But let me tell you what happens. We've been conditioned very impatiently by our culture, by our own flesh. And what happens is when we don't get the specific thing that we wanted and we asked, and maybe it becomes an impossibility to ever get that thing, we can be tempted to stop asking, stop seeking, stop knocking. So do we not, on, we not only don't get what we originally wanted, we don't get the thing that God had designed for us because we failed to continue to seek him. Some of you have given up on a prayer that didn't happen. And you stop asking the Lord about it. You stop calling unto him. You stop seeking him. You stop praying. You stop seeking his presence. And because of that, you not only didn't get what you want, but you didn't get the answer that he had. You say, well, Jeff, what do I do? I would say, pick up the axe head where you dropped it. He'll cause it to float. And you can take that thing and begin again to start chopping away at the things that God has for you. Friends, closed doors in the kingdom of God do not lock you up. They give entrance to the other door that God has unlocked. And so when we're hitting closed doors, none of us like it. I'm like, man, I, I knock, I doorbell, I door knock, I look for a window to go through. I want on the other side of that thing. But as we grow in faith and we worship God in prayer and he's moving in our lives, we learned that part of our prayer life is not getting what we want from God, it's getting God. It's getting Him. And, and, and prayer is not the, the formula by which I get what I want for me from God. Prayer is the invitation to receive what God wants for me. And sometimes to receive what he wants from me, I have to bear the weight of him saying no to what I am originally asking for. Uh, I'll, I'll give you this. Young men, hear me on this. Lord, help me on this. <laughs> Young people, love and the butterflies and the woo-hoo, that's, that's beautiful. You're 19, you're 20 years old, you think you found Mr. or Mrs. Right? That's awesome. Sometimes those relationships don't pan out like you wanted them to. You get your heart broken, you get hurt, you might get jaded, you could get bitter. But I'm going to tell you something, most of the married people in this room, maybe probably half, could say, right before I met the person of my dreams and got married, an imposter was presented to me that I thought was the right one. I almost married this guy. I almost married this girl. I couldn't believe it when he or she dumped me and I was wrecked. But then when that door closed, another door opened as I prayed and sought the face of God. If our faith is not mature enough 
to stand before a closed door that the Almighty has closed, and we still can't give him praise, then we haven't matured at all. Because if his greatness is only as great as the width that the door has swung open, friends, then we are serving ourselves and using God to fulfill our agenda. And so let's get down into this next place. Not only worshiping God through prayer, but worshiping God with praise. I know these are elementary statements, but because we don't slow down and tarry over them long enough, they're unpracticed realities. They're simple concepts. Yeah, praise and prayer. Yeah, I'm a Christian man. Okay, but my question is, are our churches and, or are our lives being conditioned by these things? Or have they just become Christian words? Are they just words that we use and everybody knows what we're talking about, but nobody's doing them? So, worshiping God with praise. And this is where Pastor Jeff gets real happy. Because this is right in my wheelhouse. Praise him from the wealth of our love. Let's go to that theologically rich first chapter of Ephesians in verses 6 and 7. Paul again. I mean, he's a brilliant theologian, but nobody outpraised Paul. He says, to the praise of Christ's glorious grace, or God's glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, speaking of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, listen to me. There is the possibility that your life and mine may be faced with such temporary and external trials, tribulation, pain, loss, and suffering. It can happen. Don't listen to anybody that tells you, no, it can't happen. It happened to the best believers in our Bible. It can absolutely happen. We're not promised a free pass. As a matter of fact, everybody in the Bible that stirs my heart in one level or another went through a corridor of suffering during their lives. But if, if, if that is the only place where we can find ourselves, the Bible testifies that you and I are still immeasurably blessed. If we lose our health, God forbid, but it can happen. If we lose our health, if we lose our wealth, if we lose our influence, if we lose our ministry, if we lose our family, if we lose, if we lose, if we lose, the Bible declares over your loss, you sure are blessed. You are favored. You are blessed. You are cared for. You are beloved. You are watched over. You are provided for. You are secure. You're an overcomer. You will triumph. You're more than a conqueror. That's just what the Bible says. And so therefore, as I confess this morning, I walked in a little flat. I didn't have any good reason to be. As a matter of fact, I'm, I've been in a really good mood all day. But just when I came in, I thought to myself, I can either wait for him to stir it or I can stir it myself. And I just waited on him. And eventually, yeah, he stirred it. But here's the thing. I, I've got a lot of external reasons to praise God. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. Most of you, by comparison to the rest of Earth's population, you're really blessed horizontally. I mean, I don't want to get into all of that, but, but, but you just are. I hope you can recognize that. You don't have everything the way you want it. You'd be spoiled if you did. And so when I'm looking at this, look at what it says. It says, Jeff, the Lord invites you and all of your brothers and sisters 
He calls you to a life of praise. Not a, not a praise service, not a worship service, but a life of praise. And so, the question sometimes is asked, yeah, I don't have anything to praise him for. Now, I'm not here to indict, but that's a common thing because we are so trapped in our little temporary bubbles and our cushioned Christianity and our comfortable culture of, of Bible Belt uh, living, and we forget the theology of why we're blessed. Just go back and look at the verses. You're a recipient of his glorious grace. Paul doesn't even unpack it. He says, you're saved by grace, and man, that's glorious. And his grace is more glorious than we can ever imagine. Says he, he, again, his grace, he has blessed us. In him we have redemption through what? Through his blood. That means that as guilty, vile, helpless, hopeless, damned sinners, aren't you glad you came? Hallelujah. That is what we are reprobate and depraved, sinners by nature, sinners by choice, rebels and committing high treason against the, against the infinite holy throne of King Jesus, every single one of us, guilty as charged. And the Lord says, you know what? I love you, and I'm going to save you, and my son is going to pay the price for your salvation. He's going to come and live the life, Jeff, that you failed to live. He's going to live it perfectly. He's going to please me in everything. Then he's going to lay down that life as a substitute to Pay, pay the death penalty, son, that you earned. So Jesus pays my penalty, and then I get redemption. That means I'm bought out of that condemnation. I'm bought out of that accusation. I'm bought out of that damnation. And it is all through the blood of Christ. It's not through joining a church. It's not through being moral. It's not through being generous. It's not about being a Baptist, a Catholic, or a tongue-talking charismatic. It's not about any of those things. It's about coming to that place as a helpless sinner who has nothing God needs, and it's a good thing he needed nothing because we've got nothing to offer. And we say, Jesus, you are everything. I need you. Take me as I am. And he says, I will. And he saves us. And so it is from this wealth and treasure of our love back to him that we praise him. There are moments where you're not going to feel like praising. Do you know what you do? You praise him. Say, yeah, but it's fake if I don't feel it. Uh, really? Give me some chapter and verse on that. Because the, the authenticity of your praise doesn't depend on your momentary emotion behind it. It depends on his infinite worth. And last time I checked, 24-7 he's worthy to be praised. So you're always doing the right thing when you praise him. So you say, well, Jeff, it just, does he receive that? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. Um, he doesn't diminish when you don't praise him. He's still God. Y your understanding and my understanding of him and our appreciation and gratitude towards him diminishes when we don't praise him. And so what do I do? Sometimes I just praise myself out of the valley. Not praising myself, but I praise myself out of the valley. And I just start using, matter of fact, let's go to the next, let's go to the next uh, uh, passage. Hebrews 13, 15. Praise him with the wealth of our love because he's been so good. And praise him with the words on our lips. That means the Bible actually says, let it out. Well, I'm praising him in my heart. Well, open your mouth. Th through him, let us, how often? Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Well, what does that mean, writer of Hebrews? That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Listen to me on this. 
We're talking about worship and wonder. I love everybody, and I, I know what people are saying, but it's epidemic in the last 40 years for people to say, I don't have to be with other Christians. I don't have to go to church. I, me and God, we got our own understanding. I'm saved. I got my Bible. I just put on my worship music. I, I get in the book of Proverbs, just me and Jesus and a kumbaya moment, and, and, all, and they don't need the church, and they don't need to serve, and they don't need to give. And It's, just, it's, it's a little silly. Come on. I mean, our, our kids are more spiritually intelligent than that. They understand innate. I'm talking little children know, hey, wait a minute, mister. That's some jacked up theology you got right there. Where'd you get that? What do you mean you don't have to go to church? Well, here's the deal. There's something disconnected they don't want to. But when you are walking in and with the Lord, you are going to sense eventually if you'll just stick with it and persevere and press through, you are going to sense a revitalization inside. And I want to tell you, the, 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 the gospel, the advance of the gospel is dependent, humanly speaking, on us expressing what God has done for us and is doing in us. In order to make Jesus known, somebody's got to talk. Somebody's got to sing. Somebody's got to testify. Somebody's got to praise. Somebody's got to write. Somebody's got to blog. Somebody's got to let it out. And the writer of Hebrews says this, praise him with the works on our lips. I'm going to really rattle the introverts. I want you to take 15 seconds and look to somebody near you, and I want you to tell them at least one thing that God is worthy of praise for in your life. You do that while I get a drink of water. Go for it. Come on. Come on. Come on. Is that all you got? That's the fruit. That's the fruit of your lips acknowledging his holy name, his character, his infinite worth. Let me tell you something. Do you know why the enemy fights praise? Do you know why he likes to cause division in praise and worship elements of a church? It's because it's the thing he hates the most. The devil wanted all of that for himself, and he knows he can't get it. He knows at the end of the age that the God, the God that he rebelled against, is going to get it all. So he wants to fight it the only place he can, and that's here now. And so what do you do? Besides glorifying God, you irritate the fire, figuratively speaking, out of the devil when you are praising the Lord. I'm going to tell you something. When I start feeling like just kind of spiritually, I've done that like nine times in this sermon. <laughs> they have to transcribe these messages for TV. I don't know how they're going to write as a word, but good luck transcriptionists. My point is this. When I start feeling like life is less than what I'm deserved, and I know none of you have ever felt that way, but in, in those moments, I just start telling the Lord how great he is. Even if I don't feel it, I go, the I go all theological on the devil. Devil's telling me, no, 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 you murmuring and complaining and accusing and all that stuff. And I just start talking about, you know, Jesus is the perfectly holy king who is going to be lord over an eternal realm and dominion. And I get to eat at his table both now by faith and then. And he saved me and he's shepherding me. He blessed me with a beautiful wife and two precious kids. He called me to preach. I've got a really great life. I'm moderately healthy. I feel good. I do life with, with hundreds of, of wonderful people. And you know, you know what? And, and, and King Jesus is going to come back one day and he's going to split the sky and there's going to be a bunch of angels with him. And, and he's going to crush the enemy. He's going to cast into the lake of fire the devil and the demons and the false prophet and the beast. And, and I'm going to rule and reign with 
with him forever and ever. And before I leave that 25-second moment of praise, I'm thinking, you know, I've got it made. I've got it made. I don't know why I woke up feeling sorry for myself, but you know what? I've really, really got it made. How does that happen? Um, It happens when I articulate spiritual reality. You can know it in your mind, but if you're not saying it with your mouth, friends, you're shortchanging your walk with God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ or hearing the Word of God. There is something about the spoken and received audible Word that when it comes in, it is a cycle of truth moving through you. And when truth begins to move through you, it displaces all of the lies and all of the untruths that try to kind of drag your mind down. Sometimes we're simply victims of our own sermons. Nobody preaches to you more than you. And if you're not saying the right things to yourself, when I say right, I'm not just talking about, you know, patting yourself on the back, although I'm not against an occasional pat on the back, but I'm talking about when when you begin to speak what God speaks of you, you're on the most solid ground you could be on. When you start telling, when your feelings become your instructor, that's where you get in trouble because your feelings don't always tell the truth. And so we go further. Worshiping God with praise. Praise Him from the wealth of our love. Praise Him with the words on our lips. Praise Him through the witness of our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-8. through 8. Listen to this. I love this. This is for all of you that hate this message because you're in a bad place in life. Just listen. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Paul, how, how did you know, Peter, how did you know that? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with with glory. The context of Peter's words there in chapter number one of his first epistle, the context is struggle, suffering, grief, trial, and testing. The context is not floating in the Caribbean on a cruise ship like my family's about to be doing in about a week. It's not, you know, with your feet propped up and just enjoying a cool breeze. It's not looking at your 401k saying, I can't, I don't know how I'm going to spend all this money when I retire. It's not the context. Peter says, the joy and the love and the inexpressible gratitude that you have towards the Lord is in the absence of you being able to lay your eyes on him and in the presence of severe conflict, trouble, and suffering. So what does this tell us? It tells us this, that God calls his children to praise and worship Him when nothing going on around you serves as a catalyst for you to do that. I'm going to go out on a limb here. You don't have to agree with this. I I think I could probably back it up with a good Bible software in about 30 minutes to search out some verses. I could boom, 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 boom. But I'm going to give you a statement. I believe that the most precious praise to the heart and the ears of God are when His children Praise him in the midst of their crucible, in the midst of their pain. God is smarter than all of us. 
and he knows when you're struggling and suffering and there's no outward reason to praise him. And yet when he hears that tear-stained face kind of eke out the words, God, you're worthy anyway. I love you anyway. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand why I'm going through this, but I'm not going to let the enemy steal my praise. I'm not going to base your worth on what I'm going through. You are glorious, and you are good, and you are holy, and you are righteous, and I love you, and I pray you'll help me. And you, you, you fight through that. And the amazing thing is, is when unbelievers or other believers watch you in the midst of your struggle and you refuse to shame the name of Jesus, you refuse to give in to those emotions of doubt and struggle, but you stay steadfast and you wait on the Lord and you praise Him, other people step back and they say, man, through the witness of her life, through the witness of His life, I am seeing God in a way reveals to me I need to press in closer to him. It's the testimony. My life is more of a testimony than my sermons. It's easy to do what I'm doing this morning. It's a challenge, just like your challenge, to live it out in the midst of struggle. And there's not a person in here that's been immune from hurt. We just need to become immune from letting that hurt cloud our vision of Jesus. So let me get you the last point. Worshiping God, not only with prayer, excuse me, in prayer and with praise, but I am going to uptick it here, okay? And this is not just for the extroverts. This is for the Christian. Worshiping God with passion. Passionate worship. The Bible does not legitimize the passionless Christian life. The Bible never, ever undergirds this presumed reality that you are eternally redeemed, a child of God, set for glory, transformed, redeemed and renewed, filled by God, filled with God. The Bible never says, but it, you don't expect it to ever express itself passionately. Uh, friends, I want to be careful here. I've got two out of the four of us in my family are introverts, reserved. The boys are all out there. The girls are more calm. Some of you have been an introvert since you came out of the womb. You were up in the corner of the crib by yourself, and Pooh Bear was down there because you just didn't want to deal with him right then. <laughs> all the introverts are like, he knows, he knows. <laughs> this is not about personality. This is about the greatness of God who as we see him and when we see him, there will be moments where we, not only can we not stop the passion from moving, we won't want to. And I'm not telling you, you got to be, you know, flamboyant or loud. Some of us are just kind of born loud. I'm, I'm not saying you have to put on an act. But what I'm saying is if, you're, if, if this one that has been everything and is being everything to you, if he is the central reality of your life, there's going to be moments where you can't put a cap on it. So let's just see from the scriptures three ways that this might present itself. Really four, and they'll be quick. A passionate longing. Now listen, this isn't hyper. Psalm 42 verses 1 through 4 isn't hyper, it's just passionate. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts 
for God, for the living God. And then the question, when shall I come and appear before God? He wants proximity. He says, my tears have been my food day and night when they say to me continually, where is your God? And these things I remember as I pour out my soul. And look at what he remembers. He remembers going with the throng and leading them. This is a worship leader's testimony. Leading them in procession to the house of God with what? With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude enjoying a funeral? No, keeping festival. The, the, the psalmist is saying, I need an outlet for the intensity of who God is in me and what he's done for me and what he's doing in me. I need an outlet. He says, Lord, I have watched the thirsty deer panting through the woods looking for somewhere to drink and be refreshed. He said, Lord, that deer is me and you are the stream of living water. I'm thirsty for you. Now, notice this. This is a passion that is not silly. It's, it's not carnival. It's not swinging from the chandeliers, charismania. It's, it's, a, it's a, oh, it's the, it's the groaning that can't be uttered. It's the longing and the deepening, and it is, a, it is a reasonable expression of just how desperate the psalmist is for the Lord in his presence. And then as he is sensing an absence, and apparently other people are saying to him, yeah, where's your God now? Has the devil ever done that to you? You've been serving the Lord a long time, and now look at you. Where's your God now? Where's your breakthrough prayer now? Where's the favor now? And the enemy is an expert at that. And that's where you've got to just start praising the Lord. you just got to start telling Jesus how good he is. When the devil starts telling you how sorry your life is and how bad God's been to you, you just start saying out loud how good he is. I'm going to tell you, the devil will move to somebody else's mailbox. And so the psalmist is hearing, where, where is your Lord? And, he, and, and the psalmist says this, man, I remember when we used to go up to the temple, the tabernacle, and we would go up with loud songs of praise. And we would go up with shouts. And it was like a festival. I'm going to give you something. I don't have time to linger here. Maybe Pastor Dustin can hit it in the next couple of Sundays. But friends, if there's one people group on earth that must be celebratory, it is we. <laughs> it's us. We are those people. And I know that a lot of us have a lot of, you know, ecclesiastical Samsonite, you know, luggage that we, we, we're dragging this around. And, you know, we got a backpack on, we got a carry-on, we got a rolling bag attached to the carry-on, and it's all of our denominational luggage. And most of that luggage has like a, a travel sticker on it that says, shh. But I'm going to tell you something. In the days that we are living in, we have cause to celebrate. We can't do it anywhere else. And the psalmist, our brother in Christ from ages ago, says, yeah, there were times it was like a festival. And Lord, I'm longing for you. So a passionate longing, it speaks of desperation. And then a passionate trust, this speaks of dependence. Let's go to Job, who again was suffering, and he's, he just comes up with this statement that most of us know. And uh, I don't know if we've applied it to our lives. I, I just say, be real careful. But Job said it. He said, though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. His, his, his passion for God 
and for God's sake, not, not what can he do for Job. Job said, he can kill me, and I'm still going to say, he's worthy of my trust. Job had lost everything. You know the story. Lost his children, lost his business, lost his health, lost the respect of his wife. He lost it all. And Job is sitting there talking to a bunch of fundamentalists who are telling him he must ascend. And he says to them, he says, you guys are miserable comforters. He says, I'm going to tell you something. You speak like you know what you're talking about, but God could kill me. And I'm going to tell you, he is still worthy of my trust. Listen, I I love you, but uh, I love you so much. if, If I ever have the chance, I will never let you feel sorry for yourself. We can be compassionate, but when we start enabling people to live in self-pity, we are not helping them. My goodness, what the Bible says about us and the strength and the power and the grace and the love and the goodness and the inheritance and the blessing, all that stuff's not just simply when we get to heaven. Jesus says, I am with you always. Passionate commitment, Psalm 57. My heart is steadfast, O God. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. I love it. You talk about a passionate commitment. That whole psalm is full of stuff where the psalmist says, I'm just going to do it. I will to do this. It ain't about whether it's easy. It's not about whether I'm appreciated. It's not whether or not uh, my circumstances are conducive and convenient. I am going to make sure at the top of my list, Lord, that you hear my praise, that you get my worship, that you hear my voice among the multitude telling you how worthy and good and glorious you are, and I'm going to do it among the nations. You know what that refers to? The non-believing pagans, the Gentiles, the goyim, the heathen. He says, I'm going to do it in their presence so that they hear it. And friends, this is, and by the way, oh no, I'm going to lose you right here. He says, I'm going to get up before the sun does. He said, I'm going to awake the dawn. The the picture there is, I'm going to be praising you so loud, the sun's going to get up to see what's going on. Come on. That's a lot different than showing up to church. Checking your clock, wondering why he's still preaching, and it's 1210. (laughs) But notice this. He says, my heart's steadfast. He he made up his mind. And then he, his heart, careful, a renewed mind will lead to an aligned heart. When your mind is renewed by truth, You're not done until your heart aligns with that truth. And it is when the heart is aligned that the praise comes forth. An enlightened mind, a theologically accurate and enlightened mind is not enough to continually praise God. You can think correct thoughts about them, but praise involves the heart. And the heart is the seat of passion, both good passion for the consecrated believer and for the carnal person, it can be ungodly passions. But I want to tell you something. We are commanded to worship with all of the mind and to love the Lord with all of the mind and all of the heart. And so we get down to the last part of it. Let me just apply the verses I just read. Please fix your heart. Affix your heart on the Lord. Nobody can do that for you. Nobody can preach you into that. You have to come to that place where you say, Lord, I have made up my mind. I am done with all the sorry excuses 
of why I'm not living a life full of praise. I'm tired of it, Lord, and I'm making up my mind today. I'm going to do it, and I will wait on the vibe to come later, but I'm going to do it right now because it's right and you're worthy. And then a passionate mission. Titus 2, 13 and 14, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, here we go, zealous of good works. Zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. We're talking about a passionate mission. I don't want Newbridge, neither do, does Pastor Dustin, neither do your elders and your um, ecclesia group leaders and your Elevate leaders and your other people that are, that are sacrificing and serving in this place. We don't want it to become a seminary hall or a house of preaching or, or, or just a, a great place to come and get a good worship vibe on before you go to the lake on Sunday. Friends, if we are not about a, 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 becoming a people of mission, a people who advance the gospel, a people who sow and sacrifice and do it again and do it again and do it again and pray and wait and lock arms together and work through our, our relational gunk together. If we're not on mission, then what in the world are we on? We must be a people who recognize, wow, I just read that he, he uh, redeemed me and purified me and all other Christians to become people who are zealous to do something good for the glory of God. And I love that because you know what? If everybody believed and practiced that verse, the leaders and preachers would never have to beg for you to serve. We, we, never, we, we need some nursery help. We need some parking lot help. We need some landscaping help. We need some, and by the way, we need all those things. <laughs> we do. But we never have to ask because people be climbing all over each other saying, man, I, I got I to gotta let out some of this zeal. Your leg would be shaking. I'm, I, I got to do something with this. I, I'm so zealous. I got to do something. Give me something to do. Here, push a lawnmower for the glory of Jesus. I'll do it. Change a diaper for the glory of Jesus. Doesn't sound right, but I'll do it. Wait in the parking lot on a June hot day, 95 degrees, to make sure people whom God blessed and wants to bless and wants to save can get in and out of the building without crashing into each other. I'll do it. Going to the homeless shelter to feed and to clothe the hungry. Going to the mission field, whatever it is, this is a thing. The Bible doesn't say we ought to. It says the Lord did. Did what, Jeff? He purified himself of people zealous of good works. It begs the question, well, what if I've never been zealous of good works? I would pursue the answer to that question because the Bible says, that the Lord's people have been consecrated, set apart, and they will be a people who are zealous of good works. So when we look at the wonder and the worship, so many ways worship can be expressed. It's a lot more than a 25-minute music service on Sunday, right? It's 24-7. I love Sunday music. I want it to be great and greater and greater and greater, but I thank God that my worship life doesn't depend on what happens on Sunday. I thank God for it. Brothers and sisters, worship in your relationships, worship in your disciplines, worship in your sacrifice, worship in private, worship in public, worship with your lives, worship with your lips, 
worship. Why? Because he is a wondrous God, and we must be wonder-filled people.